Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And because that's true, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, just two verses is our text this morning. It's where we left off a couple weeks ago. So as you're finding Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28, let me mention that I missed you. I've been away for the last couple weeks. Two weeks ago, I was in Athens preaching at Cleveland Road Baptist Church, which a few years ago, it's a church right outside of Athens, right close to the, near the campus of University of Georgia, and A few years ago, it was a dead and dying church with just a few people in it, but a young pastor, Parker Moore, has assumed leadership there and is doing a wonderful job, and there were over a hundred college students packed in this sanctuary, praising the Lord, learning about Jesus. It was super exciting. You'll hear more about that at our member meeting in a couple weeks. And then, last week, I was in India, gathering with our friends there that we have been supporting for several years about four or five churches that come together, that we're connected to, that I've had the joy of partnering with. And so it's wonderful to bring you greetings from Cleveland Road Baptist Church in Athens, and then also the churches that we are connected to in India. And it's wonderful to be able to serve them and be served by them, but it's wonderful to be back home. So this morning, we're going to look at just two verses. And uh, we left off here at this portion to finish up chapter 9 here before we get into chapter 10 because as I, I think you'll see here, there's a real important doctrine here, a few couplings of doctrine that I want us to see. So let me read our text and then I'll pray and we'll get into it. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in verses 27 and 28 of Hebrews chapter 9. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let me give you the flow before I pray of our message, just an outline to orient your thoughts. I think this text gives us three things we need to consider. First, death. Secondly, judgment. And thirdly, Christ's return. And so on this sentimental post-Thanksgiving Sunday, as we approach Christmas, happy Thanksgiving and Merry Christmas. We're going to talk about death, judgment, and Christ's return, which I think will give us great cause to give thanks to him and to anticipate his second coming. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the Lord's day. Thank you for what you have done this past year as we approach this last month of 2023. Thank you for the letter to Hebrews that we have been feasting on for the past months. I pray that as we consider this short passage today, that you would help us, that you would cause it to be like a spiritual ammonia in our nostrils, to wake some of us up, to rouse us to alertness, and that you might use this text even as we've prayed several times already in the service to draw unbelievers to faith. Even the children, Lord, would they pay attention? Would, would things be said today? Would truths be heard? Would scriptures be read that 
plant seeds of gospel faith in their life for eternity. Help me, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So just as a catch-up and a reminder of where we are in Hebrews, really the point of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything that's come before. Remember, this is a letter that's written to New Testament Christians who are primarily ethnically Jews, who are living in Rome in the first century, and they were very likely being persecuted for their faith. And as a result, they were tempted to go back to the more socially acceptable Old Covenant, the Judaism that wasn't being persecuted by the Roman Empire, as where Christianity was. And the writer of Hebrews is wanting to encourage these Jewish Christians who trusted in Christ to not give up, to not go back. And so really the whole point of Hebrews is the writer comparing aspects of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament or Jewish life and how Jesus is the better reality of all those things that these Old Testament shadows point to. So Jesus is better than Moses. He's the one that Moses was pointing to. He's, he's better than the promised land. In fact, the promised land was just a, a temporary earthly shadow pointing to the true Canaan, which is Christ. He's better than the law. In fact, he's what the law was pointing to. He's better than the priests. He's better than the sacrifices. He's better than the temple. All these things had their place but they were all pointing to Jesus, who is better by far. So hold on to him is the point of Hebrews. And what's going on here at the end of Hebrews chapter 9, it's been a long discussion about how Jesus is a better priest than any of the priests in the Old Testament. And he's a better sacrifice than any of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. And to understand what's going on in verse 27 and 28, you have to understand that one of the points that he's been making in Hebrews 8 and 9 is that the aspect of repeated sacrifices, how you have to kill an animal over and over and over again in the Old Covenant, which was necessary as a shadow pointing to Christ, is no longer necessary because Christ doesn't need to be sacrificed again and again for our sins, but because He is God in the flesh, because He's completely obeyed God in His life, because he stands as the one true priest, the mediator, and the better sacrifice between God and us, he has died once and for all. He doesn't need to die again and again and again. And so this, it's almost as if in these two verses, the writer of Hebrews, his mind wanders, and he's saying, you know, it's just like us, like man, we're all appointed to die just once. This idea of Jesus' singular once and for all death serves as a kind of, a thought bubble for the writer to say, and we're going to die too. And then, he, then just in a couple verses, almost as an aside, in just these two verses, there's this amazing amount of doctrine that is packed in about death and judgment and Christ's return. So I want us to look at that. Let me read the text again, and then we'll look at death, judgment, and Christ's return. He says, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So first, let's look at this, what verse 27 points us to, this idea that everyone will die. Physical death comes for everyone. It's a consequence of the fall. God promised Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 2. He said, if you eat of this fruit, of this tree, you will surely die. And they did that. They disobeyed. 
and we see death enter into humanity. So not everyone necessarily dies as a consequence of their specific sin, something that they do that causes their immediate death. But this idea that we are fallen people, that death is a consequence of the fall of mankind. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so we are all by nature sinners. We're children of Adam and Eve. And and as a consequence of our nature of sin, the consequence of the fall that we have all participated in by our nature and by our own individual choices, death has spread to all mankind. So all of us will die. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is picking up on here. He says, we will all die. Now, a question that I think we should think about is, Given all that we've talked about in Hebrews, about how Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin, which ultimately is death, why do we still have to suffer death since Jesus has paid for the penalty of our sin, which is death? And this is where I think we need to understand. The Bible doesn't give a direct answer to that question, but I think we should understand as we read the span of the New Testament that our great salvation doesn't come to us all at once. All the benefits of our salvation doesn't come to us all at once. Immediately we're justified. Our sins are forgiven. Immediately we're adopted. We're, we're regenerated. We're renewed. We're, we stand right before God. But the full benefits of our salvation, the, the final enemy of death, awaits to be finally and fully conquered when Jesus returns. And we'll get into that in just a moment. In fact, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He gives us a kind of picture of the span of salvation from justification all the way to the end till Jesus' second coming. He says this, verse 22, 1 Corinthians 15, for as in Adam all die, meaning we are all by nature sinners, just like our first father Adam, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, meaning those that are trusting in him, we, we trust in Jesus, we're made alive, we're regenerated. But there's a process here of that salvation, and he gets into it, verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, referring to Jesus' resurrection. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ will be resurrected and will reign with him forever. Then comes the end, verse 24, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So do you see this drawn-out process? We have the cross, we have Christ's resurrection, we have the forgiveness of sins, but then there's this process of Christ through his people, through the gospel spreading, through the centuries, destroying every rule and every authority, and finally Jesus comes and he completes it and he returns, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so we have to deal with death until that time. Well, the question then comes, what happens when we die? What happens to a believer when they die? Well, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, that we're of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So maybe you've heard that the phrase to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, it comes from that text. That, In other words, when we die, immediately... We breathe our last, our physical bodies die, but our spirits and souls, and I'm 
I'm using those phrases interchangeably as one thing. Immediately they go to be with the Lord. Paul says in Philippians 1, for to me, verse 21, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So to depart this life is to, for the Christian, to be with Christ. But in a in a, almost an incomplete sense. And what do I mean by that? So at death, our bodies go into the ground and our spirits, souls, immediately go to be with the Lord. And we can call that, I think, rightly, heaven. But it's not the full, final, new heavens and new earth. That it awaits Jesus' return when he comes back and he resurrects the bodies of all those that have gone before him, so those that die are with Christ, and they are this army coming with Jesus in his return, which we'll read about in just a moment, and we are resurrected, and our bodies are finally and fully glorified, and our spirits are reunited with our bodies, and he establishes his kingdom forever and ever, and we will reign with him. That's the point that I think Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 15, when he talks about how the imperishable, in other words, that body that's dead in the grave, must the perishable, the body that's dead in the grave, must put on the imperishable. We will be resurrected. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3. Listen to this. He says that, but our citizenship is in heaven, for from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So I want you to see this, this, this gap in a sense, this process of what happens in death. When we die, if you're in Christ, your body immediately goes into the ground. Your soul goes to be with Jesus, with the Lord in heaven. But it is awaiting a time when we will return with him in his second coming and we will be in the twinkling of an eye, as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, reunited with our resurrected, glorified body. And we will, this is stunning, we will be with Jesus and like Jesus forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what death is for the Christian. Judgment also comes, and death also comes to the unbeliever. What happens to them? More on this in a moment. But just as as a believer's body goes into the ground and their soul immediately goes to be with the Lord, awaiting that final resurrection, also likewise for the unbeliever, their body goes into the ground and their soul departs from him into eternal punishment, awaiting a final resurrection where they too will be finally and fully judged on that day. So a few thoughts about death and heaven. It's, we can think of heaven as here now, but not yet fully consummated. It's coming. It's going to be glorified where we will be with him. We won't be, we won't be disembodied angels floating around on clouds. We will reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And death is coming to everyone. And so we must be prepared for it. But we also must not, we need not fear death if we are in Christ. It's an enemy that will be destroyed on that final day. He will put it under his feet. And so we should, we should not fear 
the future. So that's death. But it says also here in verse 27, it's appointed for all men to die once. And after that comes the judgment. So we die and there is judgment. What is, what is this getting to? What does this mean? Well, I think we can think of judgment in two aspects. A, a personal judgment upon our death. And then a final full judgment upon Jesus' return. So this text clearly tells us that we die and immediately we are judged whether or not we're in Christ or out of Christ. And so if you're in Christ, you're immediately, if you're trusting in Christ, if you're, if you're putting your hope not in your own righteousness, not in what you have done, but in what Jesus has done, immediately you are with him forever. He says to the thief on the cross, the day of his, his crucifixion, he says, today you will be with me in paradise because of the thief's trust in him. And so for a believer, there is a, an immediate personal judgment upon our death. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. A believer who's trusting in Jesus is immediately judged. We're in Christ. All of our sins are forgiven and we're with him forever. But for the unbeliever, there is also an immediate personal judgment. Let me read to you Luke chapter 16. This is a lengthy little passage, but it's good. It's good for us to read Scripture. It's good for kids to hear this. This is a parable that Jesus offers in Luke chapter 16 about, about what happens after the wicked die. And notice, I want you to notice the immediate personal judgment that happens to this unbelieving rich man. Luke chapter 16, verse 19 and again, this is a parable that Jesus gives about what happens after we die. He says, there was a rich man, verse 19, Luke 16, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, or Abraham's bosom. Don't get too caught up on that. That's just a Jewish way of speaking about heaven. So he's just talking about the poor man died, was carried by the angels to heaven. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, a Greek concept for hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So Abraham representing the patriarchs, this, this sort of representative of heaven. So this, poor, this rich man, the poor man has gone to heaven and the rich man has gone down to hell. And he sees Abraham, again, just this parable that Jesus is giving about the, 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 the fixed nature of what happens to us after we die. And so this rich man in verse 24, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. In other words, it's final. There's no post, no ant can pray you 
out of purgatory because purgatory doesn't exist. We die, and there's immediate personal judgment for everyone. That's what Jesus is saying here in this parable. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament. They have the Bible. Let them hear them. In other words, let them listen to the word of God. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In other words, if you don't pay attention to the word of God, even if somebody gets up from the grave, you're not going to believe it. So what's the point? I mean, there's much we could say about Luke chapter 16 in this parable of Lazarus and the rich man. But at a minimum, it teaches us that after we die, we immediately go to a personal judgment, whether that's heaven or hell. And there's no chance, there's no post-mortem chance for salvation. And that's what's happening to this rich man here in this parable. He is going away from the Lord because of his lack of faith and trust in God. So that's a personal judgment. But then the Bible speaks also of a final judgment upon the return of Christ. And our, our, our headings here, death, judgment, and the return of Christ. Judgment, this final judgment, and the return of Christ, I take it as happening all at the same time on the second return of Christ. And the Bible speaks about this final judgment, about how those souls that are either in heaven or in hell will be resurrected. In fact, Paul says in Acts 24, he's before this Roman ruler, and he says that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, where there will be a final, full accounting of everything when Jesus establishes his kingdom. And I think Jesus alludes to this at the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 25. Again, let me read this longer text, an important text about Jesus' return and the judgment that happens at his return. Matthew 25, verse 31. This is Jesus speaking. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, his second coming, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, and, but the goats on his left. So the sheep represent those that are trusting in Christ. And the goats represent those who are not trusting in Christ. So this is just another reminder. I, I know I say it often. There are only two types of people in this world. Those that are in Christ and those that are not in Christ. Those that are in Christ and those that are in Adam. Those that are sheep and those that are goats. And here we have this final accounting. Verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my, the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now let me pause there 
and say that I don't think Jesus obviously is teaching here that we are saved by our work, saved by what we do. But I think he's picking up on something we see in the book of James, that faith without works is dead. In other words, if we truly say we love Jesus, it's going to manifest itself in the way we love him and one another. And it's obvious in the life of the sheep that they loved God because they loved people around them. Then he will say to those on his left, the goats, the unbelievers, the unregenerate, those who are not trusting in Christ, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these, verse 46, here again, Jesus is separating all of humanity into two realities, the sheep and the goats, heaven and hell. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. And this is the final and full judgment. And so I just want to make a few notes about this final judgment and the reality of eternal judgment and punishment for those that are not in Christ. A couple Wednesday nights or a couple months ago, we did a Wednesday night on the doctrine of hell, and we can go deeper into that. If you want to go deeper into that, I commend you to listen to that. But just a few thoughts about what this, even this passage says about eternal judgment for those that are not in Christ, about hell. That hell is punishment. Hell is banishment. It's not a ceasing to exist. It's a banishment from the presence of God. It's a place of suffering. Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, we don't have it on the screen, but he says that hell is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And hell is a, it's an everlasting place. It's eternal. Just as heaven is eternal, hell is eternal. And every soul, every human soul that's ever been created will live, in a sense, forever, ever, whether with the Lord or apart from Him, in this punishment. This is the clear witness of Scripture. And here, at the end of Hebrews, we have this doctrinal, just sort of side statement here, commending us to take serious, not just our life right now, but eternity. So the final judgment for the unbelievers to be separated from him forever. And on the other side, the final judgment for the believer is to dwell with God in glorious, eternal, unending, and ever-increasing joy. Now, a question that comes up is, will believers be judged in some sense, on that final day, and the answer to that question is, is yes. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. He says, For we all, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And then he, he elaborates a little bit in his first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 15. Listen to what Paul says. He's speaking of Christians now. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day 
capital D, meaning judgment day, that future final return of Christ will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done, meaning Christians. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Okay, what's going on there? Well, we could spend a lot of time just going through those passages and just thinking about the aspect that, and the truths that this says about judgment. Let me just say quickly and in summary, this means, I think, that our lives actually matter and what we do matters. Now, what are we to think of this final judgment that in a sense will be a kind of dividing of rewards for Christians? Is this something that we should fear? No. Remember, we have to take the Bible as a whole. Remember Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this final and full judgment, even though our works will be manifest and the things that we did that weren't built on the foundation of Christ will be burned up and some of us will be saved by the skin of our chinny-chin-chin, so to speak, and others will, will have greater reward because of what we've done, even then, what will the posture of the heart of a believer be in that moment when we see all that we've done and finally and fully the righteousness and the justice and the goodness and the mercy of God, even in the burning up of the things that we have done that he died for, will not cause us shame, but will cause us great joy. Because at that moment, I believe, we will understand in full measure the depth of the greatness of our salvation. And so even seeing that, even seeing the things in our lives that are burned up on the judgment day will serve as an opportunity to give more praise to God. So there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. When what, about, what about those that we see that maybe receive more rewards than us in heaven? Well, here's the good news about even that here on this earthly fallen place. When I see somebody else, maybe I'm tempted to envy or jealousy or covetousness. But in the glory of heaven where there is no more sin, when I see a brother or a sister who's receiving more reward than me, it will only be an opportunity for me to glory and thank God for the goodness and his, his, his reward for them. And there will be no lack in me, so I will only rejoice in the goodness of God and the rewarding of people that are populating heaven. And so Christians can look forward to this judgment day, but at the same time, it can motivate us to say that this life matters. And what we do matters and brings glory to God. So we have death and judgment and finally the return of Christ. So that's the accent here at verse 20, 28. Look at Hebrews, our main text again, Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. In other words, sin has been dealt with in his first coming on the cross, in his resurrection, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Jesus is coming again when all this judgment will happen, and we should be eagerly waiting for him. So what are we to think of Christ's return? How does the New Testament speak of Christ's return? Well, back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. Let me read a few verses out of Matthew 24 that gives us a sense 
of the aspect, the imminence, the, how we should be eagerly anticipating Jesus' return. Now, Matthew chapter 24 is a notoriously complex chapter. It's called the Olivet Discourse. It's a lot about the end times. I take it, let me just say in summary, that I take that some of the things that are going on in Matthew 24 have already happened, but some of the things that Jesus speaks about in Matthew 24 are yet to, to be fulfilled in the future. And one of those is clearly his second return. And so look at verse 36, and this is Jesus speaking, Matthew 24, and I want you to just notice the nature of his return. Verse 36, Jesus speaking, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, meaning the days of judgment and the flood, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, people won't be aware. They'll be just living their lives, giving themselves to pleasure, and it will come upon them like a flood. Verse 38, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two, will be, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. And by the, let me just pause there and say I don't think that's referring to the rapture. In fact, I'm going to ruffle some feathers here and we can talk about it later. I don't have time to get into it. But I don't think the concept of a two-part return of Christ, like a secret rapture of the saints, followed by Jesus' second coming, part B, is biblical. We can talk about that later. If that messes you up, I'll be glad to sit with you and, and show you how I, think that, how I think the scriptures do not teach that. And sometimes people think that there's like this idea of one will be taken and one left, that some will be snatched away or, or taken away, raptured, and somebody's left. And I, I don't think that's what's going on, because if you notice that it's, it's really referring to is the days in Noah, so actually the people that are being taken up or swept away are the ones that are being caught up in judgment. So I don't think this is talking about a rapture. I think Jesus is coming back one time for a second time, and at that moment, judgment happens for all. There's not a secret rapture of the church. We can talk about that more later. I know some of you won't be able to concentrate on anything that I say from this point on, but I'd be glad to talk to you straight and longer from the Bible. Notice the point of this text, though. Here's Jesus' conclusion, verse 42. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man, meaning Jesus, in his second return, is coming at an hour you do not respect, expect. So what's the, what's the thrust of this passage? Again, Matthew 24 is notoriously difficult to interpret, and there are lots of good faithful Christians that have different understandings and, and, and uh, disagreements about all that's being said in Matthew 24. But at a minimum, what Jesus says here in this passage that I read from this glorious chapter is that he's coming back, and it seems to be at a time when most of the world won't be anticipating it, and so he's warning his people, I'm coming back, be ready. Which ties into everything that he said about death and judgment. Be ready for your 
personal death or be ready for that moment if you happen to be of the generation when he returns to be ready when Jesus comes. So everybody is either going to die and and stand before Jesus personally or is going to be alive when he comes back. And the point is, is be ready. Be ready. Either he's coming to us or you and your personal death are going to him. That's the point of, of this text. And the thrust of the New Testament is that this should cause an eagerness, a, a leaning forward in the life of the Christian, that we shouldn't be like the world was in Genesis chapter 6, just sort of not paying attention to God, or like the people in 2023, just scurrying about their lives, just with no care of eternity, living for this life only, and that that terrible hashtag, you only live once, as if you can just kind of do everything that you can do in these 70 or 80 years. That's the complete opposite trajectory of the New Testament. It's saying live for eternity. Be ready. You're going to die. Judgment is coming. Jesus is returning. So don't give up. Trust in him. And look at what Paul concludes here. How he says, how he says, this should, what should this do in the life of a Christian? Should they, should they all move to Montana and build bunkers and extract themselves from this fallen world? No. He's saying that you should give, this should cause us to live for him in this present age. So listen to Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what he says to Timothy. He says, notice, he's, he's not calling for any separatism or any pietism or, or just kind of us for and no more. He's saying, live your life, give yourself away for the sake of God here in this life as you're waiting for that life. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And listen to this. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In other words, those who are longing for his second coming even as they are being poured out now in this life for the sake of the glory of God. So you notice that tension? Uh, just avoid the Christians that want to put you in this false dichotomy. As we eagerly anticipate the return of Christ, we work and we wait. We don't work as if it's going to happen centuries in the future, and we don't wait as if it's going to happen anytime right now. There's this combination. We work and we wait. We witness. We pray. We gather. We preach the gospel. We raise our children. We do the best we can. We do good to the Babylon that we live in as we wait for Jesus to come back because we will all die and judgment will come and Jesus is coming again. That's the point of Hebrews chapter 9. Just as a, isn't this beautiful? I actually think this is just kind of like a, oh, oh, by the way, at the end of Hebrews 9. And it's full of glorious doctrines. So just two, two thoughts as we conclude. Thought number one, this is just a reminder to hide yourself in Christ. Like, <laughs> I, I think I've been thinking about this last couple days um, in between turkey comas. Thinking about maybe an unbeliever being here this morning and thinking about all the objections that you may have. 
And boy, I wish, I wish, I wish we had hours just one-on-one where I could sit down and say, yeah, I understand. Think about maybe you weren't raised in a Christian home and some of these aspects of faith that many of us just find instinctive and easy are an obstacle for you and you have lots of objections. And I, I understand that, but I just want to say, I just want to say, I just want to say to you, even though you have lots of questions, you have no new questions that, that people haven't grappled with forever. And there's this overarching reality that there's a creator, you exist, you're here for a reason, there seems to be some order. Everything in the universe just screams design, creator. And we also see this creation that's so broken and disjointed. What's your answer? What's your solution? You were created to live forever. Have you considered that your creator has a plan and a system and that that this world doesn't revolve around just these 80 or 90 years of every individual person, but that someday you may stand before this creator. And in that moment, I know you've got objections. I know you've got questions. I just, but, but let's just cut through all of that. In that moment, what will your plea be? That you read some 20th century philosophy and you've got some thoughts? Or that... Or that God, in his kindness, this is the beauty of the gospel, sent his son Jesus to bear his wrath for you because you have rebelled like every other human being and your only hope is Christ. So you you may have lots of questions. Gosh, so do I. But I just plead with you to consider, hide yourself in Christ. Think about that. That's your only hope. And he's offering it to you now. You've heard it. Hide yourself. Turn from trusting in yourself and put your hope in Jesus. I I pray that you would consider that. And then the second thing for those of us that are trusting in Jesus already, we just just live, live, let's live with eternity in view. Why this is so hard? I I can get, my my universe can shrink at 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 an email or a phone call or some piece of news that I hear. My universe and my heart and my faith can shrink. And when we read passages like this, not that those things are unimportant, not that this life is unimportant in any way, not that I don't need to roll up my sleeves and do the hard work of dealing with my own heart and everybody's around me, but this just reminds me that there's this eternal reality. We were made to live forever. We will die someday, and we are in Christ, and we will be judged, and my life matters, and he's coming again, and so I can let go go of my death grip of this world and rest in the goodness and the eternity with Christ that is mine if I am in him. And I I need that today, and I think maybe you do too. Let me pray. Lord, as we get ready to sing a song, what a friend we have in Jesus. May you help us see the reality of death, the certainty of judgment, and the freeness, and the glory, and the rest, and the triumph of Christ's return. Lord, may my friends that are here today that do not know you, may they, may you use this passage, these scriptures that we've read, my 
feeble exhortation to cause them to hide in Christ. And may you use it also to help us live with eternity in view. In Jesus' name, amen.